everyone. Welcome back to the Adventures Less Traveled podcast. I'm your host, John Schwenk. I'm sitting here with Sean Tracy. Sean and I actually met on my bike trip about three years ago in 2019 in Talkeetna, Alaska. Sean has quite an interesting background. He was a U.S. Navy search and rescue swimmer. He's no stranger to the cold. He went to school at University of Alaska at Fairbanks. He did an incredible achievement by going from the lowest point in the continental U.S. to the highest, from Death Valley to Denali. And on top of that, he keeps raising the bar, and he does ultra marathons. And, um, and on top of that, he also has a distillery in eastern Pennsylvania. So thanks for coming on the show, man. Hey, man. My pleasure. Good to see you again. Yeah. During that bike trip, I was just kind of looking for a hostel and then randomly came across Sean and uh, it was Sean and some of his buddies who were just finishing the test run. So um, what exactly was the Denali 135? Yeah. So Denali 135 was sort of a uh, invention, believe it or not, um, conjured up by my then eight-year-old daughter. Having gone to school, University of Alaska, having been up to do Denali and, and uh, visiting Alaska a lot, uh, I'd always gone back and forth. My family, I've got a lot of family up there. And one summer, uh, my daughter and I went up to go camping and just do a whirlwind uh, trip around the state. And uh, at one point, we're camping on Denali Highway, and um, she's heard me mention ultra marathons of 135 mile length over the years. There's Brazil, there's uh, Badwater, there's uh, uh, the one up up in Minnesota. But anyhow, she had heard that distance mentioned before the 135, and. Um, so she's like, Dad, you should do an ultramarathon on Denali Highway. It's exactly 135 miles long. And I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. Ding. Wait a minute. <laughs> Kid's got a great idea. Arrowhead. I'm sorry. Long day. Arrowhead 135. So there's a bunch of 135s. And I said, yeah, she's got a point. And, um, you know, not having been in the ultra thing for too long, I've, I've sort of made it a rule after I started a little company doing ultras that I wouldn't offer a race unless I did it myself. So I was like, that's cool, honey. And I we came home and I thought about it for a while and I decided that if I was going to do that, I wanted to test run it first. So um, I got uh, a friend together that I'd run the Vermont 100 with. And I said, hey, man, I got this harebrained idea. I want to run across Denali Highway. It's never been done. Uh, you want to go? And he's like, yeah, count me in. We found another buddy to drive a support vehicle. And the next year we were up there, you know, in Paxson, Alaska, looking west 135 miles going oh shit it was kind of a crazy year too because they had like insane wildfires so the air was absolutely choked <laughs> with smoke and we couldn't even breathe at the starting line it was just so bad and i had been there before several times and i knew that the alaska range in all its majesty was right there but you couldn't see any of the mountains and i kept promising i'm like i swear to god there's mountains there and they're spectacular <laughs> but you couldn't see like almost your hand in front of your face so anyhow we ran it um, Bill, the other guy that ran it with me at mile 90 something blew his meniscus, <laughs> uh, you know, rock started out and, and we stayed together and hobbled the, the 30, 40 miles to the finish and we got it done. And my mission was to get it done under 48 hours, which is what I would expect the race cutoff to be. So we pulled it off and, um, it was a great time, had, had a great time. We, uh, put a website together and got some local sponsors. We got um, Denali Brewing Company. We got some cool local sponsors on board. And um, we were all set to go. We got some people registered and COVID hit. So we had to put the brakes on and then we waited um, another year. But by that time, we had more people signed up. And fast forward, the first running, which was uh, in 2021, 
uh, went off without a hitch. It was spectacular. Um, weather was absolutely phenomenal and everybody had a great time. And then we just ran it again for the second time this past year. And we've already got a, a, just a bunch of people already signing up. But it's, it's a cool race because we, we did the 135 mile full Denali Highway. And then we have a half version, which is basically 100K. And this year we're adding a 50K, which will be fun for people that want to get home and like watch. Me. Yeah, watch, <laughs> yeah, yeah, get yeah. home, watch Netflix and eat some tacos <laughs> after running a 50K. So yeah. it's fun. And it, it allows me to share um, uh, my love uh, of a very special place uh, that you know intimately, having ridden your bike through there. Sure. Um, with whoever's willing to trust me with that. Yeah. So it's really and, cool. And something. Um, that we'll get to in a, in a little bit, but Talkeetna specifically was the spot where on this Death Valley to Denali trip that you did way back, um, I believe Talkeetna was kind of your launching point for the for the mountaineering expedition. So, yep. right. So I'll let that sink in for the listeners. But the reason that you're here, this is actually the first show in Charlotte um, in person. And uh, Sean is actually on his way to a race down in Alabama. So, He's not a stranger to these ultra endurance, ultra long distance uh, marathons. So the thing down in Alabama, what is that? Yeah, uh, so that's the Pinhoti 100. Uh, it's a it's a hundred mile trail race. It's it's I think the fifteenth running of, and it's pretty highly regarded as a you know a pretty decent tough trail race. Um, similar in a lot of ways to the Vermont 100, which was my first 100. So I haven't done too too many. I've done a bunch of fifties, a bunch of fifty k's but uh, needed up my game on some of these hundos. So, um, yeah, we're heading down, and Bill's going to be pacing me through the night, you know, which is kind of fun. Um, and that's, uh, you know, four or five hours from here. So this works out great. You know, yeah. it's fantastic. I'm psyched. Um, I, I had some medical challenges in the past year. COVID kicked my ass, turned my heart inside, upside down. Um, tore my meniscus, had to keep up with Bill. Got that scope. That's all fixed. So I'm feeling really strong, feeling ready to go, ready to rock this race. Well, I'm, I'm hoping by the uh, by the time this episode's released, we'll have oh, nice. we'll have you nice. up on the uh, on the leaderboard. Nice. There. Yeah. Well, I don't know about leaderboard, <laughs> the finisher board, man. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the thing I think that is worth stressing is like you kind of the Denali 135 was like your your baby. Like oh, you yeah. you started that. You all your all your effort yeah. went into that. So I'm happy that the second the second race happened because. From there, it's only just going to escalate and networking and 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 ever it's it's going to get bigger and bigger and you know it's such a spectacular setting. I mean, there's there's few places I've seen in the world, having been around, that um, are just so vast and um, just magnificent. You know, remote settings where you can truly just get inside yourself um, and be part of your environment. It's this weird dichotomy, but I mean, it just goes on forever. I mean, you have vistas that are a hundred miles long, similar to Death Valley in a lot of ways. It's, it's a very spiritual place. Um, and people that, that go there and spend time there, especially during endurance events, um, all are, are connected to those places for the rest of their lives. I mean, I was sure. from, from Badwater and I know the Badwater runners and Chris Kosman and his races, all the Badwater races, you know, he's built an amazing family of uh, adventure endurance athletes uh, over the years. And I think Alaska will get there eventually. Um, it, you know, it has its different challenges. Uh, there's some wildlife, you know, <laughs> concerns. Um, but knock on wood, they're, you know, typically all at a distance. We see critters out there. But one of the nice things about the, the Denali race is we run it on summer solstice. 
Nice. So sun never sets. Sun never sets, and yeah. you know the, this. The tough part for me and a lot of runners, ultra runners, is night. You know, right? You, yeah. You want to just lay down and sleep after running for however many hours, but not an issue in Alaska. You just <laughs> keep on going. That's awesome, man. Um, now, I, I guess it's worth prying open the box that is ultra endurance. So, um, now, how did how did that kind of come to be? Like, was it? I'm assuming you can't just like all of a sudden, like I, I can only run about three to four miles. So I can't just be like, Hey, I'm going to do the Denali 135 next year. Or is that, do you, so you see think. people that, that so do you that? think Yeah, you could run a lot further than that, John. Okay. I mean, and that, that's what I mean. Like, I don't know. I don't know anything about yeah, the sport. I mean, it's, uh, you know, having done some crazy stuff in the Navy, um, you know, physical hard stuff, um, that tests you and pushes you that that's always been part of my makeup since I was in my teens and, um, you know, learning about this crazy world of, uh, endurance athletes, I don't care if they're rowers or climbers or, uh, runners, you know, there's a, there's a whole group of people in yourself, you know, you hop on your bike from New Jersey yeah, to yeah, go yeah. to Alaska. Um, you know, a lot of people think that's just plain nuts. Right. Um, but a lot of those people could also do this and it's just a matter of taking that first step. So, um, I just want to experience as much as I can, you know, while we're here. And um, these ultras that, you know, it's, it's, some people have said it's like life in a day. You experience the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. And um, in a very short period of time, um, we were just talking before about how cool it is also to be able to show up at these races and toe the line with the best of the best. I'm a solid back of the pack guy. I mean, <laughs> I'm a solid back of the pack. Yeah. But to be able to toe the line with, you know, some of the best out there and fist bump each other, be running the same course, that's pretty cool. You know, it's yeah, pretty cool. Sure. Everybody's experiencing the same thing. And everybody's there to sort of encourage everyone else on as well. So, um, yeah, that's sort of where that came to be. And then my Death Valley to Denali thing was sort of a – it's kind of an interesting intro, interesting intro into the endurance sport uh, world because at the time I didn't even know about ultra marathons and I just needed to recalibrate. You know, we all have some ups and downs in life and I had gone through some of those and I needed a chance to recalibrate. So I came up with this harebrained idea to do um, Death Valley to Denali. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we get there. Yeah. It, it kind of in the weeds of the ultra world. What is, what does training look like? Like when you're, is it, um, because I imagine that that is like a full-time lifestyle thing where like you have to, I mean, you, like how many miles do you do? Like what kind of, what's a diet like? Like how do you, how does one like prepare on more of like a granular level or like on it for a, for, for training? Yeah. Good question. I mean, everybody's different, right? Um, and the races will also, often dictate what your training is road races are different than trail races and hot races are different than you know arrowhead or you know some of these cold winter races so you know you take the environment the time of the year into play um mileage is is key i mean i there's pretty standard sort of protocols as far as number of miles training wise like i like for me a rule of thumb is for about Two to three weeks out prior to race day, I try and match in that week the number of miles that I'll be running. So 
three weeks ago, my high mileage week was 100 miles with a couple long runs back to back, like a 20 and then a 30. Um, it's mostly time on feet, you know, that we're not looking to break any, I'm not looking <laughs> to break any records. And, yeah. and my interest in ultras, um, I, I never thought I'd be doing them. I, I ran a marathon seven years ago and it was horrible. It was the most painful thing and I didn't have fun. But afterwards I was like, oh, I'm going to give that another shot. There's things I can do to better my time. And I did a couple more, I did Philly, I did a couple local marathons. And I realized in short order that I wasn't going to get much faster at 50, whatever I was, three. But what I was getting was more stubborn. And I was like, this is great. And at the time, I had heard a buddy of mine. He's like, yeah, I ran this 100 miler. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I started looking for races. And I jumped right from, um, I think I did a marathon, then a 50 miler, then a couple of 50Ks. And then I was right into a 100 miler. And um it, it, it's true. It's just about perseverance. Um, 90% of it, I believe, is in your head because when you're out there doing it, inevitably things fall apart um, physically, nutrition-wise, weather. And it's just a problem-solving exercise. And, and I like that. I enjoy that. And that's the, you know, that's the other side of me is trying to sort of work through those things. But, um, yeah, I have no aspiration to winning anything i just want to get to the finish line and and look back and say yeah i did that you know and and do it with a bunch of really good people and the other cool thing about ultras is you have um crews most of the time and you have volunteers and it's just this big giant you know arms open everyone's racing community yeah it's just yeah. awesome it's yeah. really cool like i don't think people realize how how mentally tough they can be if they really dig deep you know and like it's that, that's what's crazy. It's like not everyone's different physically, yeah. but everyone, if they really try or they really dig deep, you know, they can all bring out that mental fortitude. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And I, you know, sure. I respect the, you know, the, the, the rockets, you know, the youngsters that are burning it up and setting, yeah, yeah. you know, course records and that it's super impressive. And I have a ton of respect, but I equally have a ton of respect for the people that are, you know, they're pushing the golden hour, you know, coming in with 10 minutes left before the cutoff or I had a runner, um, who ran my first and I went 35 and she's out there running all kinds of races, Natalie Bickers. And Natalie just last year did the Moab 240, two seconds left on the <laughs> clock, two seconds, Natalie, you're a rock star. Um, so, you know, those people are out there toughing it out yeah. for twice as long as, as the speedsters. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a whole different mental game. And, and you know, the other cool thing is there's a lot of, you know, older people up there. I'm knocking on 60 and I just got into it. And it seems like there's a lot of people my age, you know, late 40s, early 50s that, yeah, they're not they're not going to go crush it. You know, maybe they're not even going to get to Boston, you know, get their BQ, but they're stubborn and they're determined and they have a lot of passion and, and life's experience and histories that just all culminate in this drive to just get stuff done and yeah. just get out there and, and make it happen. So, yeah, it, it's very unique compared to other sports in the sense that like you do get a huge range of athletes that participate in it. So after this uh, race in Alabama, do you have any, do you have anything else on the, on the horizon? Yeah, the- I'm going to, I'm going to go uh, tune up my winter endurance skills up in uh, Northern Wisconsin at the, Tuscobia uh, winter ultra and that's a you pull a sled you got all your gear um 
it's sort of self-sufficient thing, but that's a, that's a test run for a, a kind of a secret project I'm working on all right. up in Alaska for later in the winter. So if, if all the planets align, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll do a talk next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's giving me food for uh, another episode here. Yeah, man. So, all right, so let's, uh, let's dig into this Death Valley to Denali uh, trip here. So right what, um, how did that, how did that come? I guess start with the basics. What, what was it from a purely from a like 20,000 foot view? Yeah. So, uh, Death Valley to Denali was the first and to date only, uh, human powered expedition from the lowest, hottest point in North America to the highest, coldest point in North America. Um, all said and done, it was a 3,611-mile uh, mountain bike trip. Quasi-mountain bike. It was more like a Franken-bike. I had slicks on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back tire was a mountain bike tire. But um, 3,611 miles on the mountain bike, about a uh, probably a 70-mile walk into base camp. Most people uh, climbing Denali fly into base camp, about 99% of them. And, um, uh, and then uh, a climb of the mountain. And... Um, yeah, it was uh, covered the entire spectrum, you know, desert, arid, crazy hot, uh, not as hot as, you know, like some of the uh, summer races there because I left in March. But um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty awesome experience. And again, good people. Uh, I found some people that were willing to go along with my harebrained idea, met some amazing uh, sort of really historical first time sort of adventures out there as well um on the mountain and um it's it's been a to some degree it's been kind of a backseat driving force to a lot of the things i've done in my life both business and you know just pleasure adventure wise since yeah cool cool thing um and so when you were doing this was this was the mentality race like let's get there let's do it in record time because it, it did end up being a record, but was that the goal from the get-go or was it, I just want to kind of do this? Well, it's funny. The idea came to be, um, I had had some ups and downs in life. We all do. And I just felt like a need to career wise, relationship wise. Um, and I needed to sort of recalibrate. And I said, you know, I need to just do something really hard where it's just me in the road and the, you know, the tundra or something. I need to put something together where I can recalibrate. So I'm going to go climbed an alley. I'd gone to University of Alaska. I could see it on a clear day, a hundred miles away from Fairbanks. And I was like, someday. So I decided I wanted to do that. And, um, you know, I was looking into it and I'd seen that a bunch of people did it. And I said, well, I want to do it a little different. I want to somehow figure out a way to do it different. And I remembered seeing a movie um, there at University of Alaska about an Australian guy um, Maybe it was a key. I think it was Australian. They climbed Everest from sea level. So the opening shot was him like coming out of the Bay of Bengal. <laughs> and he literally walked across India and climbed the mountain. So oh, he's, he's the only guy um, that's ever done the entire mountain from sea level all the way up. So I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it from sea level. So I made a couple calls to rangers at Denali National Park, the mountaineering rangers. And they're like, sorry, dude. Some guy already did it from Anchorage, which is right down the road. I was like, shit. So it bummed me out for a while because I was really latching onto that as my sort of self-prescribed uh, therapy. Yeah. And um, 
I was bummed out. And I was like, well, what can I do? You know, I, I got to do something different, but I still want it to be a Denali. And I was like, well, maybe there's someplace lower than Denali. And I remembered from, I don't know, elementary school geography class that there was Death Valley. And, there were, and I had been through when I was a kid driving back with my parents through the country. I had been through Death Valley. And I remembered, quick look up on the Internet, and there it was, Badwater. So that was the plan. Um, I'll go from the lowest point to the highest. Called the ranger back, and I was like, hey, has anybody ever gone from Death Valley? And the guy laughed at me. He's like, no, that's just insane. <laughs> and I was like, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Just your guy. So I just planned it out. It took about a year of planning. At the time, I was swinging a hammer as a carpenter, a timber framer, and saved up some money and uh, found a friend to drive my support vehicle, found some people that would want to do the walk-in uh, from where I stopped my bike ride. Um, we called it the, the approach to the mountain, which, which was Talkeetna, right? Yeah. It started right outside Talkeetna. Yep. And, uh, there's an old mining road that goes, I don't know, 20 miles back into the Petersville Hills where I ditched my mountain bike and we walked in from there. And in a lot of ways that approach was, I think one of the highlights of the trip. It's just to, to be where no human, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, it's not like totally wild. Totally. Yeah. So, um, walked in and did that but yeah that's how it came to be and then it was just you know i did a tiny bit of training i had never climbed anything one of the guys that was going to join us for the climbing thing had a uh, a climbing school up in the adirondacks and several years ago he had tried denali but he got spanked from weather which happens a lot on denali so he had a score to settle so he was on board and then i had a buddy from fairbanks that wanted to uh get on board he was a, a runner and a adventure guy and then another young guy uh rock climber that was just getting into climbing and he's like yes i'm out. so i got the team together then it was just a matter of doing it i had no idea what the hell i was doing i mean <laughs> first day in death valley i'm like i'm gonna set my sport vehicle up i'll see you in 150 miles yeah yeah and i'm like dying you know and we learned maybe to keep it a little bit closer and uh, we learned a lot along the way i got bronchitis in the Sierras. I got Giardia in the Yukon, <laughs> um, lost about 15 pounds, but the ride, you know, pulled off the ride, met those guys in Talkeetna. And the next thing you know, we're sort of slogging in to base camp and, um, it's just spectacular. You know, you know, that area, it's just oh, yeah. incredible. And people along the way, it was funny when I tell them what I was doing from the beginning, they would sort of laugh at you. But the further I got along in the trip, the more credibility I had because I was that farther yeah, yeah, yeah. along. So when I got to Talkeetna, they're like, Oh, cool. Good luck on the mountain. You know, whereas, you know, in the Sierras, they're like, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, yeah, it's like the first day on the bike trip and I'm, I like stop at a convenience store and they're like, you're going to Alaska. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that fuels you, you know that, yeah, you know, yeah. so it fuels you a little bit. And then eventually you get so far that people don't believe you either. Like right. you didn't cut. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't come that far. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, and you're like, look at these freaky tan lines on my legs. Nobody gets <laughs> yeah, yeah, these. Yeah. I'm just walking around. Yeah. So yeah, we we made it into base camp. Um, uh, weather, we had like three storm days at at high camp. I think um, waiting, and that's usually where expeditions on Denali get clobbered. Is you know weather just sits there and they run out of fuel or they run out of food, and they got an option: give it a shot and go up top, or be safe and go down. And unfortunately, a lot of them uh, retreat. But weather worked for us, and we summited on solstice. You know, that's that's wow. my day, right? Oh, wow. That's the that's crazy. day we hold the Denali 135, 100K, and we, we summited on uh, solstice. So, 
Yeah, it's uh, 25 years ago this past year. So, so uh, a fun, a fun little fact is we're sitting 26 floors up where <laughs> yeah, we're doing yeah, this yeah. podcast. Oh, nice. And uh, he was 20,000 feet, 320, 20, 20, 20, Yeah, it's, they measured it differently nowadays, 20, but yeah, 20,003. So, yeah. You, I think you're a little bit uh, scared of heights if I were to if I were yeah, to get man, that's, man. It's funny. Um, yeah, I pulled up and I saw this big tall glass building. I was like, oh shit. Uh, one of the reasons that I uh, undertook that trip in the first place is, as you pointed out, I had done a lot of crazy stuff in the Navy. I was a pilot uh, in the civilian world, flight instructor, did some bush flying, jumped out of helicopters and swung around helicopters and did all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, Years after that, all of that excitement, you know, some crashes, some lost friends um, due to crashes and accidents, just came back to visit and started having freaky panic attacks while flying. That doesn't work real well. (laughs) So I sort of changed gears. And um, that was in large part the reason I did that trip was to um, overcome the fear. Yeah, just try and you know, see what was going on. I thought, what's a good way? It was sort of a good analogy for where I'd been, right? I'd been in this, in a low spot, like what the hell just happened to me, you know, psychologically with these panic attacks and I'm going to sort of take it back. So what better way to go from the lowest point to the highest point? Yeah. It's a perfect metaphor. Yeah. So showed up here. Thanks. 26 floors. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Maybe this is the beginning of a new uh, low to high, you know? (laughs) Exactly. It's all good. So what, what's it like? I'm sure very, very few people on earth have ever had that experience of being at the summit of a mountain. So what is that? What What is like goes through your head? What's kind of the, I imagine it's a very visceral experience. It is. Denali's a spectacular mountain. Um, you know, you're above tree line from very low down because you're you know, so far north. Um, and it, it's your, also considered one of the seven... Peaks, yeah, one of the right? seven summits. And so the seven summits is the seven highest points on every continent. Yes, sir. So that's the North American. And Denali's got an interesting sort of um, reputation because it is so far north and the weather is so fickle. Um, you know, there's probably about a 60% success rate every year. And um, it also has, even though it's 20,320, the oxygen up there is is less than that's the equivalent of about a 23,000 foot mountain because you're so far north and the atmosphere sort of bulges around the equator due to centrifugal force. So the further north you go, the less oxygen at higher latitudes. Um, But it's spectacular. Um, It's also the tallest, it's taller than Everest from its base. Right, right. I've heard that. You know, when we started, um, well, I mean, for me, I started 282 feet below sea level. (laughs) But um, the base of the now base camp is seventy two hundred feet. I think Everest, you're up fourteen or you're up oh, really? there. Yeah. Oh wow! So it's spectacular. Um, it's the route we climbed is a relatively non technical route, but there are areas where you are exposed and you are you know several thousand feet looking down, especially on summit day, where you get up on Denali's uh, infamous summit ridge, which at times can be ten inches wide. And it's a eight, 9,000 foot drop on this side and it's 4,000 foot drop on this side. And it's a little intimidating. Um, <laughs> and it's a sort of serpentine looking dragon's back that goes for about a quarter of a mile to the summit. <clears throat> but unfortunately, because you can't breathe up there, 
the time needed to go from the beginning of that little sort of dragon's back to the summit could be a couple hours. So you're, you're taking two steps, taking a panting breath. for you know <laughs> two minutes, taking two more steps. So it, it's very laborious. Um, I was out of my mind. I, I saw a car drive by at one point. Uh, I saw a couple climbers on the ridge coming at me and I'm screaming at them over the wind. There's not enough room. And there was nobody there. Um, but once you summit, I mean, I was you know, not being extremely comfortable at height. I'm looking around going, okay, it's time to get down. Um, and, and you know, too, the weather can move in very fast. So that was half of the mission that day. The rest was getting down and I had a real tough time. I had spent everything I had to get to the summit and, um, you know, between losing so much weight on my bike trip and getting Giardia, which was still affecting me, I was not a hundred percent. So coming down was, was tough for me. And you know, I think it was a 16 hour, 17 hour day. By the time we got back to high camp, um, I climbed in upside down in my sleeping bag, crampons still on <laughs> just, and I passed out. Yeah. Um, I, I think they say the descent oftentimes is harder than the ascent, right? What, what, why? What's the, cause you put everything into getting to the top. Okay. You know, you're, you're, you know, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. And from a technical standpoint though, is it, is it like, um, not so much. It's mostly just, it's just about the energy. Your energy expenditure. You know, you, you're, you're so focused on getting up there and you're just, I'm going to do it. And then once you get up there, you realize maybe you didn't leave as much in the tank right, right. as you need to. And I guess also or you like, get a little, little sloppy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also like the, the carrot's not at the end of the stick when you're going right. down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I had a tough time getting down. And a lot of times in Denali, that's where people go. There's a, a, a famous section called the Audubon or um, Denali Pass where people just get tired and, you know, the trip on their own crampon and they're gone. Um, you know, and it goes very far down to a place that nobody ever goes to. So there's a lot of people that got a little, little, sloppy a little um lazy going down that are still there so um it was it was tough getting down was tough but once you're through that and you start going further down the mountain the beauty is you're getting oxygen back and uh, you feel like superman so every <laughs> thousand feet you go down you're picking up your different caches of equipment and fuel cans and empty yeah. food containers and you're just feeling superhuman till you get on the lower part of the glacier now it's starting to warm up the crevasses, the snow bridges over the crevasses are soft, so you got to be super careful because you will, you know, take uh, falls through those. The snow bridges can only be eight inches, ten inches thick, and you step on it, whew, and you know, crevasses five hundred feet deep. So yeah, once you get back to Talkeetna, then it's party on. <laughs> it's funny. We, I don't know about funny. Um, eye-opening we got to Talkeetna and there was a couple guys on that summit ridge that we had met when we were getting ready to go out and we said go 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 and they're like no this is our summit and they're Spanish climbers and we said no no it's over there you got to go up there and they're like no way we're not going out <laughs> on that and we saw them later on in the Fairview oh wow and we were in there you know ah, beers yeah, and, yeah, and they yeah. were just you know, sitting in the corner so sometimes you got to push yourself a little bit further than right. you think you need to you know that yeah, yeah. it's it's a, it's f interesting because it's like a fine line between pushing yourself when you know like you know deep down if you really tried you can you can push it but then it's also like what's that line between pushing it and just being overly risk taking you know and like that that 
I mean, I guess that's the beauty of the whole sport because it's it is, and you know, it's, it's a pretty organic dynamic thing too. Like I have a daughter I didn't have way back then, so I was like, you know, I'm gonna give it all, and you know, it doesn't work out. That's how it was meant to be. But now with a little one, you know, she's 11. Um, you know, you gotta. It's a, it's a different. It's, it's a yeah, different yeah, yeah. formula now. So you know, you know when to reel it in a little bit. That bar that you were saying, what's the name of it? That oh, when the Fairview. Came, the Fairview. That's, I believe, we, we got breakfast or lunch there or something, and you had like a, oh, you had yeah, something that was signed, the, Yeah, right? the Roadhouse, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had a, it was, it was like 25 years later, yes. right? That was like 25 years. So on the day after we summited, I made a, or no, the day we summited, I, I tore a section of my stuff sack from my sleeping bag out and we wrote oh that's right yeah yeah, yeah. death valley to denali expedition first ever lowest to highest blah 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 and got some summit pictures and then um <clears throat> when we finally got down to talkeetna inside the uh talkeetna roadhouse which is a historic restaurant and lodge uh super cool place uh trish is the owner um all the sort of historic expeditions that have ever been on Denali are stapled up. Their flags are stapled from all around the world, Japanese, yeah. Korean, Russian, Polish, all these mountaineering expeditions flags. So uh, I was honored that they asked if they could put ours. So it's still up there. And then when we did, when Bill and I did the first crossing of the Denali Highway, I was like, shit, man, let's take another <laughs> red something and write the first crossing. So we've got two uh, beat up old pieces of fabric with Sharpie <laughs> on them in the Takitna Roadhouse. Cool. Great muffins, by the way. Trish. Yeah, great muffins, was, Trish. Great food. Nice, man. That's something you'll always remember. Be, yeah. Was there anything you felt like you left on the table when you did that trip? I remember I remember one thing you told me when I was on my trip was that you, you wished you did a lot more journaling. Yeah. You know what? You're right. You're reliving it, and I'm sure you felt this way. As you're reliving it in the, in the short term afterwards, it's all very fresh. Yeah, right. You can remember every day, every event. Yeah, and I've heard the same thing from like ocean rowers and other people that, you know, do these crazy endurance things. And because it's so fresh and you're reliving it, you think that's going to be with you. And I found that it started to sort of, as I got back into the world of non-adventure stuff, just day-to-day stuff, it started to sort of dilute. And I would try and jot things down, but a lot was lost. Gets blended together a little bit. Gets blended together. Yeah. But then conversely, you know, just the other day I was doing something and something sparked a memory that I hadn't had in 25 years. Like there I was in the particular place with a particular smell and sights. And and I was like, wow. And I just jotted it down really fast. (laughs) But I have some pretty good notes. And fortunately, those guys um, on the team uh, took really good notes, too. So, And we didn't have GoPros and cell phones. I mean, we had a cell phone. Verizon sponsored me, but the cell phone was like the size <laughs> of a loaf of bread. And they gave us three batteries. And between the walk-in and the summit, we were on the mountain for a month. So sleeping with these giant batteries just so when we summited, we could call our mothers and say we were okay. <laughs> By the time we did, I think we had like one quarter of one bar. It was like, Hi, I'm alive. Got to go. Pass the phone to everybody. Yeah. But um, yeah, we didn't have any of that technology to record any of this stuff. So um, pen and paper. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Like 
the evolution of adventures through throughout history. Like you think of the stuff when they first went to like Antarctica or the or the Arctic, like they they were doing like celestial navigation and everything, and then eventually, you know, they they did a lot more. They had better maps. They had, and so it, it just keeps evolving. And it's like a lot of times people are like, ah, oh, these kids don't know how to read a map, and it's like there's trade offs. Like yeah. there's trade offs. Like definitely, like you you now know a more efficient way to navigate, but at the same time, like having that kind of fundamental knowledge also, I'm, I'm sure helps for trips like that when absolutely you know what i mean they were the real deal back in the day though i mean i think about the early you know especially denali climbers these guys were a bunch of you know, the sourdough expedition for example not to get too off topic but a bunch of drunk miners and dog mushers and fairbanks i'll bet you you can't get to the top of that thing <laughs> how much you know i don't know your dog and a jug of whiskey well how are we going to know you're going to get up there i'm going to put a spruce pole up on the top and these guys set off across the tundra like <laughs> you know early 1900s you know and by god they by some accounts may have pulled it off you know yeah. there's there's evidence that they may have done it um and you know those are the guys you give tons of credit to uh I think the things that you did on your bike is amazing, and my trip was really fun. I think there's so much more of that to do, though, and, and that's yeah, yeah. one of the things I enjoy about putting on the Denali Ultras is that you're sort of just giving people the opportunity to do something really, really hard that will stay with them for the rest of their life in a place that's just absolutely spectacular. And right. because that race is a crew race where they – have the runners each have crews you're bringing your friends and family along with you and it doesn't get any better than that yeah it doesn't get any better yeah for sure i mean when i you and i did our trips we were by ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. you're in your head you know right. you're in your head and you're like oh this sucks if i get one more day riding straight into the wind i'm gonna shoot myself yeah 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 <laughs> well it's it's funny like i remember you know one of one of the parts that kind of got under my skin was i enjoyed it but i it was like a love-hate thing but like i remember Everyone would always call every day and like, and it was great. I loved it, but it, it did get kind of exhausting after a while. But there was this one like 300 mile stretch where just no service, nice. no nothing. And I was like, yeah, oh, this is the, this is like the best part yeah. of the whole trip, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think one thing that, you know, having this like advanced technology does help with is like it, it opens people's eyes to all these places that they never before thought, you know, like I'm fortunate that I, I love to read. So I, I have read about a lot of these like crazy adventures throughout the world and, and I've learned that way, but having the ability to use your magic box and Google something that really opens your eyes. Like, wow, that person did that. Like, I didn't know what the seven summits were until I Googled it a couple, you know, however long ago, you know, so. And there are people too, that for whatever reason, aren't able to do these things. So, you know, that's another thing that I'm really aware of and that's just a gratitude that you know i'm able to go out tomorrow and try and run 100 miles and you're able to get on your bike and and that you know as long as we're able to do those things i think we can because there there will come a time that you know we can't do yeah. that and there are people that can't do that for whatever reason so it's like they point, can live vicariously yeah, through absolutely it, you know? absolutely yeah. and you know what everybody's got their own mountain to climb you know everybody's got their own epic you know yeah. and and it's it's not my place to to tell anybody that they're lesser or whatever because you know theirs is different and yeah um so yeah you're right you know being able to you know follow along i i don't know 
followed any of these uh, ultra swimmers, you should get an ultra swimmer doing these like crazy ocean swims. And my ankles ever go, I'm going to jump on board. <laughs> but uh, I got to le- I I know nothing about it. I'll have to I'll have to do some research stuff. on it. Yeah, yeah. Farallon Islands to San Francisco, great white shark breeding ground <laughs> of the world, sharks all around. I mean, yeah, it's cool stuff out there. And yeah. without that technology, we wouldn't sort of know about it. Yeah. So there's something about adventures or the adventurous spirit that requires you to have a lot of grit. And I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that your time in the Navy certainly reinforce that in into your psyche of like no matter what the challenge is no matter what the obstacle is like i will overcome it i just have to dig deep and and do it. a lot of what we were saying before now what was your experience in the navy like because you did some as a search and rescue swimmer i imagine that that's kind of an all-encompassing mos so like what was that experience like yeah um hardcore training um a lot of training um the motto of, of SAR swimmers in the Navy and the Coast Guard, actually, it's kind of funny, you think it was the opposite, but the Navy had rescue swimmers before the Coast Guard, and they used to go to our school. Um, but the motto for all the rescue swimmers is so others may live. And um, basically, you were trained to do anything and everything you needed to do to bring somebody back from a bad situation, probably the worst day of their life. And if it meant, you know, you doing your thing, you know, losing your life, um, that's what it meant. So we trained, you know, really hardcore for that. Um, all conditions, you know, you, you see these hurricanes roll through down south of here, and those are re- rescue swimmers pulling people out of swollen rivers. Um, mine was a little different. I was in the West Coast. And I was assigned to an aircraft carrier, and so all of our rescues were people getting blown overboard, um, you know, at sea rescues, you know, commercial shipping vessels on fire, explosions, pulling badly injured people off. A lot of plane crashes, um, a lot of helicopter crashes, our own squadron. You know, we, we lost a lot of helicopters, um, just in normal day-to-day training. And I was in during, um, peace times, tail end of the cold war. So we had trained to a super high level. Um, but you know, a lot of crashes, a lot of, um, close calls myself and others. And, um, yeah, so you just needed to be on the money. And, um, you know, we didn't, everybody says, Oh, you guys were the seals. No, no, no. You know, we did a totally different thing. Our thing was to bring people back and I have a lot of respect for the teams. We went through a lot of the same training. Um, but it's just a totally different vibe. And it's kind of funny. Not a lot of people knew about the rescue swimmers because obviously the Spec Warfare guys got a lot of the attention, but I loved it. I, it was a, a great uh, experience. Um, you know, at a young age, you know, you get to do some just crazy fun stuff. Um, those guys are my brothers, you know, we'll always be tight. Uh, wherever we are in the world, if phone rings, hey, man, I need you, we'll be there. Yeah. And I feel a lot of that uh, in the endurance, you know, sport community, too. There's a lot of that camaraderie because you've been through shit. You know, yeah, you, yeah. you've you've dug deep when you needed to to get stuff done. So I think that played uh, a big part in again just sort of ushering me to ultimately doing some endurance stuff. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of uh, kind of going back to what we were talking about before about the mental aspect. Like I feel like that line of work requires you to be more mentally tough, or 
maybe not more, but there has to be a symbiosis between your mental toughness and your physical. Like you, you have to be a peak shape, but I feel like you can't kind of discount the mental aspect. Yeah. Well, the training was, um, you know, you're, you're not going to fail. Yeah. Yeah, Because if you fail, someone's going to die. Right. And so your job is to bring them out. Even if you have to, you know, sacrifice yourself in order to save that little kid who's floating down a swollen, you know, rain swollen river or their shipmate. One of my rescues was my squadron mates crashed into the ocean and um, going to what we thought was a man overboard, which turned out to be a bag of trash. But, you know, they crashed and we fished them all out. And had I not done what I was trained to do, then somebody dies. Yeah. So not to make it sound all heavy, but, um, I think, yeah, you're right. That, that carries through. And it also comes at a price, you know, it comes at a price when, you know, things get a little goofy and you get a little bound up up there and start having anxiety and PTSD issues. And I think you'll find in the endurance world that a lot of people, um, that had those experience from whatever circumstances before look to endurance sports as a way of sort of healing and community and, um, you know, just reconnecting with yourself because there's a ton of people out there that are doing endurance sports for reasons other than they want to just go beat themselves up for 24 hours. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know the science behind it, but I know when you run and you, and you do like hardcore exercise like that, it's, it is, uh, whatever the neurotransmitters are like, releases stress and everything. So absolutely, that, that was actually a, a question I was going to ask. I, my dad was in the, it was, it was in the army. Yep. Um, I know a lot of people. Thanks for your service, dad. <laughs> Even though he's an army guy. <laughs> um, go army, be Navy, right? <laughs> no. Um, so like, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people in the military personally, like my friends, I know, I know a lot of his friends were in the, in the military and one I, mental health is a pretty serious thing, I think. Yeah. And so, the mental health of our veterans, I don't think is where it should be. Yeah. So my question to you is what advice would you give having, having gone through this elite training, this, uh, this elite experience as a, a SARS swimmer, like what is it that's kind of universal among all military people that where do they find hope? Like where does, where do they clear <laughs> their mind? Question. Um, and if anybody's interested to sort of look into this more, there's another uh, swimmer that just got out, just made a movie um, that, just circulated the country, um, hell or high water, a swimmer named Taylor Geiger, um, great flick in his struggle with PTSD post service. And I think first and foremost is that, um, and you get the same camaraderie in endurance sports is that you're never alone and that you've got brothers and sisters that have experienced similar things and just to reach out. Um, in the military in particular, I think they're starting to figure out ways to unwind people. Um, I think people that are trained super high stress, um, high energy MOSs or jobs in any branch get out and the civilian world's a bit alien. You know, we are ready to go. We are super tightly wound springs ready to do what we were taught to do. And you don't right. think that when you're 21, you're like, Hey, you know, I did all this yeah. fun stuff. 
but it does come back to you in ways that you can't foresee. And me, I'm flying along one night as a commercial pilot and just waves of panic came out. What the hell? I thought somebody spiked my coffee. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was yeah. like being drugged. So there are um, better systems in place now in the military to help people sort of reacclimate to the civilian world. And I think that's super important. But going back to the non-military people, just, you know, people that are having a tough time and, and we all go through it, especially the past three years, geez, um, it's just finding fellowship yeah. and finding community. And, and I think physical exertion and pushing yourself a little bit and getting into some of these dark corners that we don't have access to otherwise until you just break everything else down gives you really wonderful insight into how great we all are and how much potential we all have. And you're able to do that in a, in a community of like-minded, really awesome people. Sure. And, and another thing is like, you, you mentioned this earlier, but an adventure doesn't have to be a hundred K. Absolutely you not. Know? Like people, I, I think something that a lot of people fall into when they get depressed is they're like, they come back in and into civilian life and they realize like none of these people understand like the sacrifices I made, like they don't even care. They don't give a shit, you know? Yep. And so that's like really, I, I can only imagine how difficult that is to cope with. So for them, maybe their achievement is, you know, maybe I'll just go to the gym three days a week or five could or be whatever getting out of bed. Yeah. I mean, somebody could yeah. have, you know, debilitating ailment that is just getting up and going to see the sunrise. You know yeah. what I mean? And so everybody's got their own race. Everybody's got their own ultra, you know, and that's my new buzzword is everybody needs to find their own epic. What is your epic? Yeah. And, um, and just all build gonna off be, they're, they're all yeah. going to be different. Yeah. Take a lot of pride in just taking the first step or action to figuring out what that is for yourself. Pretty heavy. Let's, uh, <laughs> right, dude, let's, I'm, I'm going to be replaying this tomorrow. Like, <laughs> Mile 70, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Saturday night. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> let's, let's move to something a little bit lighter hearted. Yeah, man. You have a distillery. Right. What, how did this, how did this whole thing come to be? Balance, baby. It's all about the balance, <laughs> right? You can't just be, you know, working out and running all the time. Um, I, yeah, it was kind of a weird thing, you know, just like a lot of, things in our lives we you know we maybe lose a little bit of passion for something we're doing and want to just spritz things up a little i've been doing some barn stuff um after my flying career sort of got hijacked um i started uh timber framing and working on barns i had done it a lot when i was younger in high school with a family friend i started a company and we converted old antique timber frame barns uh magnificent houses i designed them i had this sort of crazy new creative part of me open up when my pilot control thing sort of um, took back seat, which was really wonderful. And um, I had been doing that for 20 years and I started to get maybe a little burned out of it, had some big giant pro projects were huge, just massive multi-year, multi-million dollar, big, big giant barn houses. And I was just getting a little burned out. And um, some of my carpenters one Christmas gave me a little still. I had taught them how to make beer the previous Christmas, got them homebrew kits. And the next thing you know, they got me a little still and it sat in my closet and um, I didn't do anything with it. And I was coming back from a vacation 
on the plane, I'm reading an article about the rise of craft distilleries and uh, I was like, oh yeah, I got that thing in my closet. I'm going to see if I can make some <laughs> rum or something. So I started playing around with it. Um, and uh, next thing you know, you know, I'm making some stuff. I was during the recession, 2007, and um, uh, different states were starting these new little licenses available for people to start distilleries. So I started super small, um, making spirits. I was using reclaimed wood from our barns because I didn't have uh, access to barrels yet. So I was using old wood, which turned out to be kind of cool because it imparted a whole different kind of flavor profile on the spirits. And uh, it got to the point where the barn company and the distillery were demanding more of my attention than I could give them both. So I had to make the call. So I stepped off and went all in on the distillery. So I I love it. It's great fun. Um, it's a totally different world. Everybody comes in with a smile on their face. They leave with a smile on their face. <laughs> Probably uh, a bigger smile than they came in. Bigger smile on their in, face. Yeah. yeah, and it's kind of recession-proof. Um, and it's been fun. It's been real fun. So the interesting thing about distillery is the high alcohol content, which during the last couple of years, during this thing, I think it was called a covid uh, you were making a uh, C word. <laughs> you were helping out making a uh, hand sanitizer. Yeah, man. which is a pretty a pretty clever use of resources there. So, what? How, how did that happen? Yeah, we were looking to move our distillery uh, from where we had started to a, a bigger location, and so we had sort of stashed a whole bunch of spirits, super high proof, basically moonshine. It was <laughs> whiskey before it turns into bourbon. Uh, in anticipation of shutting down our operation and moving to that. We wanted to have product on hand. And right as that started to happen, uh, the, the COVID thing, we had all this product and a couple small distillers around the country saw that coming and sanitizers started to get really, really hard to come by. And so a bunch of us started jumping on board. I mean, there's not much difference i hate to say it uh, other than a little glycerin and some hydrogen peroxide and a little bittering agent so yeah we were real real quick on board to help out with that the original plan was to donate 20 percent to first line oh yeah yeah uh you know hospitals and doctor's offices uh first responders but what what happened is the word got out on the radios so like we'd give it to a local firehouse and then they'd call a firehouse and these guys have a sanitizer. And the next thing you know, there's a mile long line of ambulances, fire trucks, police cars, and you can't say no. So we gave away about 80% that, oh, we, wow. that we made, but we sold the 20% that we did sell. We sold to- Marked up. Yeah, we marked it up to cover it and they were to, um, what they call them essential businesses, like company that made seals for- pumps for nuclear okay, power plants. Yeah, yeah. So they had the cash and they basically helped put the bill for that. So it was good. And, and we got a lot of good social karma out of it um, at the same time, you know. Sweet. Yeah. Um, and is that, so that's that's still an operation, right? No, we stopped the sanitizer. Um, no, I mean the distillery. Oh, distillers. Yeah, we're still rocking. What is, is it, have a, you guys got a website or a, Oh yeah, or Hewn Spirits. Hewn Spirits. H-E-W-N, like to craft or create by hand. Um, and it's kind of a shout out to my previous life as a, um, timber frame guy. We're also doing a kind of a cool mashup. We're starting to get into uh, canned ready to drink cocktails. Um, 
partnered with Chris Kosman of Adventure Corps, the Badwater Races, and we're doing uh, my history of Badwater, his history of Badwater. We're creating a whole line of, here's my <laughs> my pitch. Yeah. Um, we're creating a whole line of Badwater uh, beverages. Um, we've got a Badwater tart cherry vodka soda. We're doing some electrolyte drinks. We've got Badwater whiskey. And it is, it's a cool thing because we both have this history and this connection yeah, to this sure. really special place. So that's fun. Um, and they'll be hitting the street here pretty soon. Is that something that, um, I, I guess it's a little funky with spirits, but is that something you can get online or? Oh or? yeah. Yeah. We're going to, that's going to be prom- primarily how we're going to be getting it out there. We'll have distribution on the West coast, the East coast, um, like bricks and mortar, but yeah, online stuff. All right. Well, this yeah. is where you'll, uh, Bad you, water you beer. heard it, you heard it here first. Yeah. Non-alcoholic beer. We're going to have non-alcoholic beer, regular beer. All sorts of good stuff. Maybe even a coffee, you know. It's the whole bad water there we go. life. It's an adventure. Yeah. Um, cool, yeah. man. So I'll, I'll, I always like to leave it on kind of a philosophical note. So you've, uh, you've been through some crazy adventures in all walks of life, uh, whether it's the military, Death Valley to Denali, the ultra endurance. You've been through a lot of very eclectic experiences for your, your children and, and for people who look up to you, like what kind of legacy do you want to leave? What, how do you want to be remembered? Man, John, that's, that's good. <laughs> um, I think I'd like to be remembered as somebody that just tried to live it all, you know, do as best as I could to live a full, um, rich life as possible and um, inspire others to do the same. I mean, be it, you know, lost friends, shipmates in the Navy, people that we lose in our lives, um, people that aren't able to do these things, ride their bike from Jersey to Alaska or go from death. You know, it's almost as though we have an obligation to do things. And again, it doesn't have to be so extreme, but to just live your life as fully as you can. And that, you know, I, I try and impress that on my 11 year old. It's a little hard because she has all <laughs> the answers. She has all the answers. But um, I, I really think that's it because we, we, we are here and we do um, have that luxury and that um, ability to, to get up in the morning and to take another step and to do uh, things that maybe we think we're not capable of doing. So uh, hopefully in the things that I do and that other people do in the endurance world, um, you know, it's, it's about inspiring people. Sure. Seize the day. Yeah, ma'am. Sean Tracy, everyone. Thanks so much, man. My pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Good to see you, John. Yeah, man.